Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in this series called Like Jesus, and we've been kind of contemplating what are the things that get in our way of being like Jesus, but also what are the things that we do that make us more like Jesus. Um, and that's certainly a worthy goal, isn't it? I'm reminded of a saying says, without God, we can't, and without us, he won't. And I'm gonna repeat that. Without God, we can't, and without us, he won't. There is a cooperation in this relationship, isn't there? It's just like any other relationship that you've got. And when we come to Jesus, we're coming because we know that we need him. And then in staying with Jesus and the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be more like Jesus, it's because we need him. That's what this relationship looks like. I'm reminded of this truth in Colossians 1.29. It says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he, who is Jesus, powerfully works within me. One of the things that we've seen over the last several weeks is that it's in practicing your faith. It's the actual practice of your faith that changes you. It's not just in the having of your faith. It's the actual practicing your faith that changes you. And so a couple of things that we've noticed over the last several weeks, some practical helps, the things that we, we do that bring about this change. One is just spending time in the word. This has probably been said for, I don't know, a couple of thousand years now, spend time in the word. One of the reasons that it's so important is you can't draw strength and insight from a resource that you don't have. You can't draw strength and insight from a resource that you don't have. So in those times where you find yourself at a decision point, you want to have the knowledge and the wisdom of God kind of soaked up in you. And that's what time in the word will do for you. Second is to have time in open and honest communication with God. One of the things that we have really held up high this year is to make sure that you have a vibrant and deep and meaningful prayer life. It will change you. Last week, I talked about a book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. Now, James Clear wrote the book and he wasn't trying to say, hey, this is a Christian book. It was a book but he was talking about practical changes that you make every single day so that you get 1% better every day, 1% better. And the whole focus, he said, is that if you were to put these kind of practical steps to your feet and to your life, at the end of a year, you're 37 times better off than you were when you started. Just 1% every day. It's interesting because he noted in Atomic Habits, one of the things that people actually want is for there to be some event, something that happens that's kind of the catalyst for them to change. And by the way, that does happen. That does happen. But he said more importantly than that is having not just goals for your life, but that you actually have a system. There's practices that you have in your life so that the change that you desire can actually come about. So he says, worry less about goals, worry a whole lot more about your systems. If you were to put that in kind of Christian language, you need to worry a whole lot more about rituals in your life. You need to worry a whole lot more about routines in your life. Or as a friend of mine says, you need to worry a whole lot more about the divine habits that you have in your life. One of the things that James Clear said, and I thought this was interesting because it's not a Christian book, is that one of the keys to success, to your personal success and transformation, is that you have an accountability partner. That sounds a little bit familiar to those people that spend time in church, doesn't it? You need somebody that's actually going to hold you accountable. There's a classic work. How many of you ever had to read The Odyssey by Homer? Can I see those hands out there? The Odyssey. 
So you have the hero, Odysseus. He embarks on a journey and he has to escape a lot of dangers along the way as he's trying to get home because he had been in the Trojan Wars. One of the dangers that he encountered were the sirens or for those of you that ever saw the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The sirens. Because you gotta throw a little bit of country on it for that, right? So he knew that the sirens, that they were, gonna, they were gonna pass along the way. These were, if you don't know, these were basically mythical mermaids. They were beautiful, they were seductive, and apparently they could really sing. Seems like they could probably do well on American Idol. That was the sirens. They were also really deadly. So what they would do is they would sing to lure the sailors in, but what they were luring the sailors into was their death. They lured them in literally to kill them. So Odysseus has his sailors tie him to the mast of his ship. And what they did is they filled their ears with beeswax so that they could not hear the songs of the sirens. And when he, as they were passing by, when he was hearing the sirens song, he knew that he was so overwhelmed with temptation from the sirens. The catch was there just wasn't anything that he could do about it because he was tied up to move. The plan worked. So on the one hand, you look at it and you go, the precautions, they were extreme, but they worked. You need the people around you, like he had his team, the precautions in place so that you can withstand the song of the siren. But I'm also reminded of this. And again, this is just a little bit of rehearsing some things that we've already talked about. Believers, I want you to remember that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have every measure of power already inside of you to accomplish what Jesus wants to do in you. In Romans 5, 9, Paul said, you, however, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. If indeed this, the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Here's basically what he's saying. If you have Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. This change can be real. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. So you need Christ to have the power for that change to come about. This is what he says. So it's just like when you look at the word of God, you need to spend time in the word of God. Why? Because you can't draw on a resource that you don't have for strength and insight. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't draw on that resource for strength and insight. In 2009, researchers at the University of Miami published a paper on the connection between religious beliefs and self-control. Religious beliefs and self-control. And here's what they found, and I quote them, religiosity correlates with higher self-control. Now the key to this is they looked into it. What was it that made people better at self-control because, because of their faith in God? And the answer was, it was connected to the rituals and the practices of the faith. But it was more than that. They saw that their goals and the practices that they had for their life were sacred, sanctified. They were holy, they were important. And as a result, those people were changed. I love this quote from Mark Twain. I don't know how many of you have ever read Mark Twain, but he said, giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world. And I know because I've done it a thousand times. You ever feel like that? I'm gonna quit it today. You know what? I'm gonna quit it again tomorrow. <laughs> easiest thing in the world is, is quitting. Sometimes the difficult part of our spiritual life is not making a decision, it's managing the decision that we make. Is that fair? I'm reminded of this and I showed you the clip of those kids and bless those kids' hearts. You know, the more I watched the marshmallow test, I was just like, man, that had to be like torture for them. 
The studies went back into the 1960s, but the studies were done again in 2018 by our good friends at Stanford University. They had two different groups. In, uh, there were children in groups A, B, and C. They were shown two treats, a marshmallow and a pretzel. I had to think about that for a little bit. Marshmallow, that was the original test going back to the 1960s. Why the pretzel? Maybe because somebody likes salties versus sweets. I'm actually not really sure, but they showed them two treats and they asked them to choose their favorite. They were then told that the experimenter would soon have to leave for a while, but that they'd get their preferred treat if they waited for the experimenter to come back without signaling for them to do so. Makes sense? If you can just wait, or at least that's what they told one of the groups. The results suggested that the children were much more willing to wait longer if they were offered a reward for waiting. That was the first group, if you just wait. For the second group, they actually didn't give them that. It was just like, can you wait? And the answer was, they weren't as good at it. They just weren't as good at it. So here's what the results went on to show. Children waited much longer when they were given tasks that distracted or entertained them during their waiting period. For example, in group A, they played with a slinky. Y'all remember the slinky? They played with that. Or they had them thinking of fun things in group B. Distractions were powerful. Don't focus on the marshmallow. Focus on something else. As the years rolled on and the children were growing up, the researchers followed up with the, the kids that they had been studying. And there were a couple of things that they found that were somewhat surprising, or maybe not when you think about it. Here's what they found. The children who were willing to delay gratification and they waited to receive the second marshmallow, they ended up having higher SAT scores. They had lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity. They had better responses to stress. They managed stress better. They had better social skills as reported by their parents. And so you know if it's coming from their parents, it's true. And they had generally better scores on a whole range of other things with regard to their life and to their well-being. That's the marshmallow test. And if you look around, my friends, I think that you can see this playing out in just normal stuff of life. So if you delay the gratification of watching television and get your homework done now, you're gonna learn more and have better grades. School started, so I thought I'd go there. Or if you delay the gratification of buying desserts and chips at the store, then you'll eat healthier when you get home. I mean, let's don't kid ourselves. If you fill yourself up with dessert, you're full. You're just not full of something that's good for you. However, if you had delayed and you had some, I don't know, steak and asparagus, because that just sounds good right now, you not only would you be full, you would be full of something that's actually good for your body. We know how this goes because what on paper looks like a no-brainer, the game changes when desires come into play. Is that fair? You, you know that passing on a donut will make you feel healthier and more energetic, but wait, that one is cinnamon apple filled. Apples, those are healthy, so I'll have five. When desire comes in, the game gets changed. So if you delay the gratification, for example, of finishing your workout early and you put in a few more reps, you're gonna get stronger and look more ripped. See, it's good. But the studies do make one thing really clear. And this is what they wanted to show. If you wanna succeed at something, at some point, you need to find the ability to be disciplined and to take action instead of becoming distracting, distracted 
and doing what is easy and natural for you. Success in nearly every field requires you ignore something easier that's delaying gratification in favor of doing something that is harder. This is the idea of self-control. And so if we're lacking self-control, what that means is, is that we are a slave to our desires and our impulses. And those are the things that can get in the way of your development and your relationship with Jesus. John Piper said it like this. He said, this whole idea of self-control implies a battle between a divided self. There are desires that we have that we should not satisfy, but we should control them. Jesus spoke about this. In Luke chapter 13, verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word that is mentioned there is the word that we get agonized from. Agonized to enter through the narrow door. You see this theme in scripture that once you come to Christ in faith, that's a gift. But what you do with that relationship, it's work. It's work. You're becoming something in the process. And Jesus is saying, this is agony. It is killing things off in you. But the good news is, is it's not just about the pain. It's what's on the other side of the pain. You become something. Why endure it? In the Bible, this isn't a secret. The secret is, is because there's a prize. You remember the marshmallow test that I was talking about? Group A, B, and C were much more willing to wait when they knew that there was a prize on the other side. Did you know in scripture it talks about a prize? And it's not particularly shy about it. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul said, do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize. Run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it an imperishable one. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Did you notice what Paul said there? He doesn't call their pursuit of a reward wrong, does he? Far from it. He says, and he states, that the pursuit of the reward also fuels his self-discipline. And it also should fuel yours. The only difference that he points out, and I'll admit it's a huge one, is that the result that they were going for was a pine wreath on their head. He said, what we're going for is something that can't be taken away from you. It's imperishable. It's always yours. Strive for it. And then we see this in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, because he talks about his own life. Paul talks about his own life. How many times this man, he says, was in chains, his prison letters, how many times was he in chains for following Jesus? But here was his perspective about it. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might have Christ. I count all the things as rubbish so that I can have him. And this came at tremendous cost to him. Some would say, if you look in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about family and marriage, but we don't really have any record of whether or not he had a, some scholars think that when he converted to Christianity, he lost them. Might've lost his family. They're like, you go there, we're done with you. I count all things so that I might have Christ. He was beaten so severely one time and he was hauled right outside of the city gates. This is Paul. They drop him outside of the city gates. All of his followers that were with him on that mission thought he was dead on the ground, looking and going, what in the world do we do now? And after a while, zoop, Paul sits back up and he looks at the guys and he goes, we're going back in. We're going back in. 
Why? And he says, because I consider all of this other stuff is like street sweepings. I want to know him more. I want to know him more. I love this quote by Tim Keller. When it comes to self-control, this ability to kind of hold back an impulse or a desire because there's something better on the other side of it. Tim Keller said, self-control is the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. You ever been there before? You feel the draw of the moment, but what's being drawn to in the moment doesn't match with your values in Christ. And you have this kind of inflection point where you know that you have a choice that you have to make. Am I going to yield to what I consider urgent right now? Or am I gonna practice self-control so that I can do the important thing? We've all been there. Solomon talks about this in Proverbs 25, 28. He says, a person without self-control is, is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. Now, if you lived back then, you would have understood the importance of walls because that's what kept the enemy out. And he says, but what you've done when you completely lack self-control is you've taken your own wall down and you've invited the enemy in. And when you invite the enemy in, you've invited every desire that the enemy has for you to come in and take over your home. You're that defenseless. And then you know the result. This is the problem with lacking self-control. You just gave that over to somebody else. They'll now control you. And you're the one that opened the door for it to happen. So how do we overcome it? How do we develop it? How do we become people that are less impulse focused and more self-control focused. Here's the way it starts. And I'm not kidding. Go to church. Go to church. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says, do not forsake assembling together. But I wanna, I wanna point out a little bit of something. Our good friends at Harvard University actually did a study. And here's what they found going back into 2016. Women who attended church were, were a third less likely to die in a 20 year period compared to non-attenders. That is wild. Here's what I concluded. You don't wanna die, go to church. That's what I took from it. Actually, here's what the, the study went on to, to show. Church going boosts your immune system. It decreases your blood pressure. It even lowers your cholesterol. Thanks church. Thanks, Harvard. All right, now let's go out on the West Coast. Our friends at Stanford, they also did studies on people that were serious about the practice of their faith. And here's what they found out. Going to church weekly is good for you. It's good for you. The health benefits, they said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Churchgoers are less prone to mental illness, to report higher levels of personal happiness. They said, even in their marriages, they have better sex lives. Thanks, Stanford. Young people, Young people who are consistent are less likely to smoke, they're less likely to use drugs or alcohol, and they're less likely to commit violent crimes. Now these aren't people that are inside of the church trying to make a point that would lift the church up. These are people outside of the church looking in and going, something's happening in that place. Change actually happens when you go. So one of the ways that we change is just to be a part of the local church. But it gets me to this question, so why do we struggle with self-control so much? That's a fair question, isn't it? Why are we so given to impulse, like fits of rage and anger, or to some temptation that you just go, man, I'm just getting like shellacked by this thing, it seems. There was another study that was done by our good friends at Florida State University. I'm going back to the East Coast now. Roy Bomeister, I think it was at Florida State. 
He said, the problem here isn't your values. Your problem is your willpower. Your problem is your willpower. You don't have any. Here's what they did. They did a study on people. They put a plate of warm chocolate chip cookies and a bowl of radishes in front of two groups. <laughs> Which one you going to? By the way, the nine o'clock service was like, do I have any radish takers? And there were like a couple of hands that slipped up. But for the most part, people were like, no, absolutely not. The whole thing was a setup, by the way. The whole thing, you knew that, right? It's a setup. The students that they used for the test had been fasting before they got there. <laughs> so imagine what it's like walking into the building and you smell like fresh chocolate chip cookies. This is not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be easy. One group was allowed to eat cookies. So they walked them into the room and they're like, you are allowed to eat chocolate chip cookies. The other group, it was, you are allowed only to eat radishes. They're in the same space. That's just not fair, right? That's just not fair. A few, I know you're wondering, the radish group started staring at the cookies. It's like the kids that I showed you in the marshmallow test, right? The, the radish group, they start staring at the cookies. A few even picked them up, started smelling them. And they're like, no, 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 I, I'm in the radish group. You know, and then they would put, the, they'd put the, the cookie back down. Then they were taken to another room where they were given a puzzle that they had to solve. Here's the catch. There was no solution to the puzzle. You couldn't solve it. Now, of course, they didn't know that, but here's what they were really testing. You remember I said the whole thing was a setup? Here's what they were really testing. Who's gonna quit first? Is it gonna be the radish group or is it gonna be the chocolate chip cookie group? And the answer is, because I know you're dying to find out, it was the radish group. It was the radish group. But do you wanna know why? Is because they had been fasting, they had been put in a room, and they had been told to look at chocolate chip cookies, but they couldn't eat them. And so by the time that they left and they were put in another situation where their willpower was getting tested, they were out of willpower. See, they had already been in another room exercising willpower in the way that the chocolate chip cookie people weren't. They just snacking on chocolate chip cookies. The radish group lasted about eight minutes before they gave up on the puzzle. The chocolate chip cookie group on average went about 20 minutes before they said, okay, I don't know. I don't know. This was what they concluded. Making decisions uses the same willpower that you use to say no to donuts or to drugs or something else. Here's another way of looking at it. You've gotta keep water in the glass. It's a resource that you have to replenish over and over and over again. There's a great little book called Your Future Self Will Thank You. And in it, uh, the author spoke with a professor and asked him about willpower. He's like, what's the key to willpower? This one, by the way, is a Christian book. Your Future Self Will Thank You. This was what the professor said in response to him. He said, if I wanted to destroy your self-control, first, I'd make sure that you only get three hours of sleep, and then second, I'd make sure that you got in a fight with your wife. And that's all it would take for me. So while he admitted that some have more willpower than other people naturally, here's what he said. Every single person has got to get their willpower replenished. You've got to put the water back into the cup. So going back into 2014, there was a study that was done on people that pray versus people that don't pray. They were put in extensive exercises that were meant to deplete their willpower. They were all given a test. Here's what they found. The non-prayers performed poorly while the prayers, after a while, there was no lack of willpower in them. 
And here was why, this is what they found. Again, a study not done by the church, it's because they found that the water just kept getting put back in the cup. So for whatever test was ahead of them, whatever exertion that was ahead of them, it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be emotional. The people that had a committed and deep prayer life, they didn't see a change in their willpower. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus spoke about this. He connected self-control and prayer. He said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation in Matthew 26, 41. Did you catch that? Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. So I'm gonna give you just one more thought on what I like to call divine habits, the divine practices that when you really embody them, they change you. And I love this quote from Daryl Dash. He said, because the point of our habits is the pursuit of God. That's why we have them. We have them so that we can have more of him. We need habits to support that pursuit. They are the ways of putting us in the path of God's grace. It's like when you are practicing the faith, it puts you on the path to have a real encounter with God, to really see God, to really hear God. It puts you on the path for that. So let me get back to the sirens. The sirens, you remember them? You remember Odysseus and what he did? I'll never be able to withstand the lure of the sirens. So he gets strapped to the mast. His team, they cover their ears. There's a different approach to take than being strapped to the mast. In a Greek epic called Argonautica, not sure how many of you have read it, the Argonauts have to pass by the sirens Man, those sirens, it's like they're everywhere, huh? But they escaped them with a different approach. As they were sailing past, they knew that they would hear the siren's song and they would be lured. However, on their ship, they had a legendary musician and poet named Orpheus. And Orpheus, as they were out at sea and they weren't far away from the sirens and they would start to hear the song, he grabbed his lyre, L-Y-R-E, think like a guitar. He grabs his guitar and he starts to play and he starts to sing. And the people on the boat were so enthralled with the song of Orpheus that they couldn't hear the song of the sirens. I think there's something for us to take here from that. Because it wasn't just about the restraining of the hand. It was about the capturing of the heart. That's what it was about. And in trust, faith, just like love, it grows deeper. It grows deeper. I'm reminded of something, something that I needed this morning. This quote from Tim Keller, and this is for you too. He says, the gospel, which is the good news, says that you were simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you had ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you had ever dared hope. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.